Father in heaven, we're looking at some of the deep things that come about in a relationship with you. Some of the teaching that we're going to look at is a little bit strange. I pray that you'll give us great understanding. Father, in its uniqueness, it still takes us deep in our walk with you. We can ignore it, that's a choice, or we can pay attention to it, equally a choice. And I know this, if we choose to pay attention, we will draw close to you. So help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In January of 1988, Tina and I's relationship took a pretty significant turn. You see, we started dating in the fall and early winter of 1987. We were both in college at the time, went on our first date out to a restaurant called EG's in Manhattan, Kansas. It no longer exists. I can tell you exactly what we had for dinner, both of us that night. Big old bacon cheeseburger and waffle fries and a cherry Coke. EG served cherry Cokes in these huge glasses. That's what we both had. It was one of our favorite meals then. It's still one of our favorite meals to share, and we do it as often as possible. Nice big bacon cheeseburger. That's good stuff. Then we went to see the movie Three Men and a Baby afterwards. That was our first date. Yep. Our second date was to a wedding in Topeka, Kansas. And our third date, Tina came to my hometown of Hutchison at the time, and we went to another wedding. So we went to dinner and a movie and two weddings. I mean, that's laying a foundation right there. Well, in January, things began to take a, a pretty significant shift. Tina's sitting here really worried right now because she's afraid that I'm going to tell you that we kissed for the very first time in January of, of 1988. But I'm not going to say that because it would embarrass her. So I will not... <laughs> I'm not even going to go there, so just rest easy, honey. That's not what I mean. Here's what happened in January of that year. We started to share from our hearts with each other. She began to share with me some of her dreams and her goals and the things that she wanted to accomplish in life. And all of the things that she was sharing began to meld with my heart. And I found myself saying, I, I want to help her accomplish those things. I want to help her realize those dreams. And I began to share with her the, the exact same types of things. My heart was opening up to her as I was telling her what I was looking forward to in life, what I was dreaming of, what my goals were. And those things began to meld with her heart. And she, at that moment, began to say that she wanted to help me realize those goals. She wanted to be there when those dreams came true. And, and she wanted to be a part of making that happen. One of the coolest things about my wife is in the years that we have been married, she has been dedicated to that very thing from beginning right up to today. From the moment that she said, I do, she has been all about helping me realize hopes and dreams and goals. And I like to think that I've been doing the exact same thing for her. Young people ask all the time how to know when they're in love. That's a difficult question to answer. It really is. A lot of times we'll speak in the realm of infatuation. We'll talk in the, the arena of lust. We'll talk about feelings and so on. But you want to know how to know when you're in love? best definition I have is this. When the other person's goals and dreams are melded to your heart and you can do nothing but think about how to help them realize those dreams. That's what love really is. It's about saying that, that this relationship isn't about me, it's about you, and I, I want to be invested in helping you go as far as you can possibly go to be the best person that you can possibly be. And in Christ, it's about us saying, I want to do everything that I can possibly do to help you grow as close to the Lord as you can possibly grow while the other person is doing the same thing for us. That's what it means to be in love. 
So there's people that will say, gosh, I, I don't love my spouse anymore. I've fallen out of love. Well, all that means is they may not be attracted anymore. Some of those feelings may have disappeared a little bit. Well, ask heart questions. How do you feel about goals, dreams, hopes, the things that really exist in the heart of the other person? That's what matters. That's what matters. Well, in the process of sharing all of those things with each other, we began a, a journey together that is, is still just as exciting today as it was in the winter of 1988. In fact, in many ways, it's more exciting than it was then because more goals and more dreams have been shared throughout those years. What those things are do not matter to you. They're none of your business. And I don't mean that jokingly. I, I mean that with all sincerity. They're none of your business. The things that Tina has shared with me are secrets that she has shared with me, and, and it's none of your business. The things that I have shared with her are secrets that I have shared with her, and, and in all love and graciousness, I tell you that it, that's none of your business. That's between us, because that's the definition of intimacy. It's the carrying of one another's secrets. It happens sometimes outside of the marriage relationship. We may have friends that, that we feel close enough that we will open up our hearts and we will share secret things with them. And it's a sign of intimacy. And there's nothing sick or wrong about that. That's a sign of intimacy that says, I trust you enough. I care enough about you. And, and I want you to be close enough to me that you actually know my secrets and I know yours. That's a good friendship. But those things have to be protected. If you value the relationship, you have to hold on to those things and hold them very close. They're nobody else's business. The same thing is true in our walk with God. There are secrets that are shared between us and Him and Him and us that are a defining aspect of the intimacy of the relationship. And those secrets have to be held on to. Let me show you an example of that. We'll go to the Gospel of Matthew. This is possibly one of the most intimate stories in all of the New Testament. Now, other people could argue from some other angles, and that's not really my point. This is just very intimate. Matthew chapter 17, first book of the New Testament, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, that's an intriguing story. I want you to think about each dimension of it. Put yourself in the shoes of Peter, James, or John. You were chosen out of the twelve to go with Jesus for whatever reason. The Bible does not tell us why it is that Jesus grabbed hold of these three guys. All we know from Scripture is that with the twelve standing around, he said to Peter, James, and John, maybe they weren't even standing there. He had just said to Peter, James, and John, hey, I want you to take a little trip with me. I want you to go up this mountain with me. And they did. They went up the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw this amazing event. They were there. They participated in it. 
And at some level, they even messed it up when Peter said, hey, let us put up three shelters. But Jesus, in his graciousness, because he had invited Peter there, didn't even stop to correct him. He didn't stop to say, oh, Peter, you're missing the point. He didn't go into any of that. They were just there. And when the voice of God spoke, they got to hear it. But here's where the real intimate part of this whole thing comes. As they were headed back down the mountain, Jesus said to them, hey, fellas, Peter, James, John, Let's keep this between us. Don't tell anybody else about what you just witnessed. At least not yet. It's not the right time. Let's just keep this between us. Can you imagine how hard it was to keep that command? To keep that request? Think about what they had just experienced. The moment you got back around the 12, maybe they were at the fish shop and you went in there. They had already ordered and everybody sat down and you were going to have dinner together. A bunch of of Sea of Galilee cod and chips and, and everybody sitting around the table and you have this goofy grin on your face and they're looking at you saying, well, hey, why are you smiling so big? Can't tell you. How, what what did you guys do today? Well, I, I can't tell you. That would have been hard. But it was intimate. Because Jesus said, this is just between us. Don't tell anybody yet. The time will come when you can, but right now, this is just between us. Let's keep it there. The Lord still says that same type of thing. You can go through the New Testament, find examples of Jesus when he healed people. And and after he restored their health and they got up and walked and danced and did all kinds of different things, then Jesus would say to them, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Or when he would cast demons out. After they had had been restored in soul, Jesus would say, hey, don't don't tell anybody about this. Keep it between us. More often than not, those people would go out and and tell the story just as quickly as they could. Some of them following Jesus around, beating a drum, saying, hey, let me tell you about what he just did for me. They didn't understand the intimacy of the secret. The secret is there for a reason. It's a defining aspect of the relationship. And the Lord still wants the same thing with us. Did you know that He has shared some secrets with you? Some things that He has said exist just within your relationship and you're not supposed to tell anybody else about it. You're supposed to keep your mouth shut because it's part of the intimacy between you and Him. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's stay there. We'll go over to Matthew chapter 6. Pick up again in verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Moving on in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Skip down to verse 16 with me. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, 
but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, there's three things that God would call out, Jesus himself would call out as secrets, giving, prayer, fasting. These are signs of intimacy in your relationship with him, and they're nobody else's business. They're not to be discussed openly. They're not to be shared with other people. They are to be kept between you and God. These are intimate secrets. But people mess them up all the time. Secret things that they share with God, they, they lose sight of the importance of that. And tragic things happen. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. I'll show you just a little bit of what happens when people mess this up. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 37, first book in the Bible now. Genesis 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. At this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now here's what's going on. Joseph has received this wonderful blessing from God. He had a special place in the early days of God's kingdom. He was right on the the heels of the patriarchs, and Joseph had this great mission to accomplish. The time would actually come, and the Lord wanted him to know this, when his brothers would bow down before him, when they would need him on base levels just to sustain their life. So God gave him a dream to let him know what was coming, but the problem was Joseph couldn't keep his mouth shut. He went to him and told him about the dream. That dream never should have come out of his mouth. He should have never expressed it. And in the moment he did, you saw what happened. His brother started to hate him. And then he ended up in a pit. They threw him into it, sold him into slavery. Now you could easily look at the whole story of Joseph's life and build a a wonderful, wonderful argument that all of that had to happen in order for him to get to where he was supposed to be. And certainly God used it. Joseph himself would say what was intended for evil, God used for good. But the story might have taken on a whole different look. He wouldn't have had to gone through decades, decades of torture, decades of trials if he'd have just kept his mouth shut. But he didn't. And it landed him in a pit. And it started a a snowball rolling in his life that would take a long time to get under control just because Joseph couldn't keep something between himself and God. Now, there's another story in the Old Testament found in the book of Judges, if you want to turn over there with me. Great story. If you grew up in Sunday school, you'll be familiar with it. It's the story of Samson and Delilah. Samson was the very first superhero 
He really was. Marvel Comics would do well to grab hold of Samson's life and make a movie about him. He had superhuman powers given to him by God, and there were visible reasons that he had those powers, visible signs of it. Now listen to what happens. Chapter 16, verse 1. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes with his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, until now you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the 11 braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled, the pin, pulled up the pen and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? Doesn't that make sense? You're not sharing your hopes and dreams with somebody. You're not sharing the secrets of your strength with somebody. Even though the Bible says Samson was in love with her, we know that that happened right after he'd been with a prostitute. It may very well be that Samson had a problem with his eyes. I'm not going to say any more about that. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. I'm not going to say any more about that either. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison. The hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Spirit of the Lord, presence of God, left him. 
for one reason, just one reason. Samson couldn't keep his mouth shut. He couldn't keep the secret. The secret was between he and God. It was part of the Nazarite vow that he had made. He was never to cut his hair. And the vow was carried out on God's behalf, and even Samson had honored it until this point. And then he couldn't keep his mouth shut. And as a result of it, the presence of God grew very distant from him. The relationship began to weaken. You might even offer that it didn't just begin to weaken. It got very weak because he couldn't keep his mouth shut. And still, God tells us that there are three things that are just between us and him, and and we mess it up all the time. We really do. Let's pick those three apart, the ones that we found in Matthew chapter 6, and I'll show you the significance of each one of them. It won't take real long. Let's start with the idea of giving. It's the first thing that rises up in Matthew chapter 6, this idea of giving. A lot of people run, I mean totally run, from the idea of giving. They just don't like what the Bible has to say about it. They don't like when people call it out. Sometimes they think of passages like this in Acts chapter 5, and it causes them to sweat out the idea of giving. Listen to this. Acts 5 verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. And the exact same thing happens to his wife. So people read passages like Acts chapter 5 when it comes to the giving of money and they think, well, gosh, if we don't give enough, we're going to get in trouble. If we don't give it the right way, we're going to get in trouble. On, on, on. And that's a distortion of Acts chapter 5. What's really happened here is the church in Jerusalem was trying to meet the needs of everybody around them and the other believers that lived in Jerusalem were coming together to take care of people that had moved there from a long ways off, found Christ and couldn't go back home. So the believers in Jerusalem said, we've got to make great sacrifices because these people left their homes, they left their jobs. We don't know how they're going to be taken care of. Ananias and Sapphira were a part of that campaign, probably very wealthy people. So they sold this piece of property and they stood up and announced to everybody what they were going to do. We're going to sell this piece of property and we're going to give all that money. We're going to give every dime of it to the church and the church will be able to do what they want. Aren't we great? Then they sold the property and made more money than they thought they would off of it. And all of a sudden, greed kicked in. And they said, we need to keep some of that back. Is there a problem with that? No, if they'd have kept their mouth shut. But they didn't. They stood up and announced to everybody what they were going to give. And then they went from there into lying, saying, this is all the money we got for the property. And the Holy Spirit knew it. They'd lied to the Holy Spirit. This was a secret thing. It was never supposed to have been shared But they shared it, and as a result of it, they lost their lives. When we give so that other people will know what we're giving, the blessing never goes anywhere. When we give for other people's sake, we destroy part of the intimate relationship that we have with God. And the Bible would teach, Jesus would teach, that if that's your motivation for giving, then boy, how do you sound it as loud as you possibly can, and you gain as many accolades as you possibly can from man, because you aren't getting anything in heaven. 
There's nothing that's going to happen in the vertical relationship. You make sure the horizontal relationship gives you everything that it can possibly give you because that's all you're getting because people can't keep their mouths shut. One of the great things about giving at Libby Christian Church, I, I really do like this, and we've worked hard to protect it. There are two people that know how much money any person in this church gives, the treasurer and our bookkeeper. That's it. I have no idea how much money you give to the church. I don't want to know. I've never asked that question. I won't ask that question. I don't want to know. Our elders have no idea how much money you give to the church. They've never asked the question. They don't want to know. They're not going to ask that question. Deanie doesn't know. Matt doesn't know. There's only two people that know how much money you give to this church. That's the way it's supposed to be because it's between you and God. It isn't between you and me. It isn't between you and the elders. It's between you and God. And the Lord himself would call that out and say, keep it that way. That's the way it's supposed to be. When we understand that, some really cool things happen. They really do. Go back with me to the book of Genesis again. In Genesis chapter 8, we find the first formal act of giving with God. Now, there are some informal acts prior to that. It is easy to see that Cain and Abel brought sacrifices before God. Those sacrifices became a point of contention, and that's why Cain killed his brother Abel, because the sacrifice was wrong and it wasn't acceptable before the Lord, and there's a lot of pride and jealousy and other things that come into play and unrestrained anger and so on. So there is some early accounts of giving, but this is the first official account. It's found in Genesis chapter 8, right after the flood, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And that was just between Noah and God. Not only did Noah have the opportunity to express his heart of thanks to the Lord through his giving and through his sacrifices, but he got to hear God's heart. How cool is that? He got to hear God's heart. You see, that's why this is such an intimate relationship. When you give, it is one of the secrets between you and the Lord that God might know your heart and you might get to hear his and see what he does with those gifts that you bring. So keep it to yourself, Jesus says. This is just between us. Matthew chapter 6 takes it even deeper and turns that into a special kind of giving. It existed in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, giving to the needy to meet specific needs. It was called the giving of alms. The giving of alms was an individual that would make sacrifice or would give out of their surplus even to help meet the needs of other people that were struggling. In the Old Temple... There was actually a specific way that would happen. A person would bring in excesses, if you will, into a special room in the temple where they would leave those gifts. Right next to that room, or very close to it, would be another room where somebody would move the gifts that were given in this room over to another place so that people that had needs could come into that room and get whatever it is that they needed. So if they needed food and somebody had brought excesses of food into that room, then they would come over here, they would get the, the food that they needed, they would leave. If they needed money, they would come in here and they would get money that the people had brought into this room and so on. Do you know what the chamber was referred to as? It was the chamber of the silent. The chamber of the silent. Nobody was supposed to know who was going in or out of either one of those rooms. The chamber of the silent. The giving of the alms. 
The same thing is true in the New Testament. When you were giving during the New Testament times to help other people out, Jesus said, just keep it between yourself. The left hand shouldn't know what the right hand's doing. This person shouldn't know what this person's doing. And the same exact thing continues on today. If you're helping somebody out, keep it to yourself. And by the way, the Bible has a lot of teaching about helping out other people. If you're helping other people out, keep it to yourself. It's between you and God. As simple as that. It's just between you and God. Leave it there. Because if you take it out of that realm, then you might as well write an article and put it in the newspaper and get everybody's attention with it because that's as far as it's going. You're going to get the rewards from man, never the rewards from God, and you'll destroy what's possible, which is the intimate relationship with God. So keep it to yourself. One of the things that I love about our Change for a Dollar program, and you're going to hear more about that in just a few minutes, is that nobody in the church knows who's been helped. That's just cool. It really is. And people are given $1 to impact a number of lives within our community and bring about all kinds of changes, and nobody knows about it. It's just us doing what the Bible says. It's cool. It really is. And like I said, you'll hear more about that. Let's go to this second area, or second arena of intimacy, if you will, that Jesus would call out. The idea of prayer. I have long said that the biggest stumbling block that people face in prayer is other people. Because you hear somebody that will stand up and pray with their biblical tone and their many words, and they'll just pound the gates of heaven with this impressive-sounding prayer. And if you're the person that struggles to ever say anything out loud, and you're even struggling to learn how to pray, you hear things like that and convince yourself that you don't know how to pray, or you have to learn how to pray, or you've got to go to classes to learn how to pray, when prayer is nothing more than conversation with God. Well, when Jesus was teaching this in Matthew chapter 6, he was trying to reverse a trend. It came from the Old Testament, carried all the way into the New Testament when Jesus was actually sharing these words. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, had a series of prayers that they had memorized. One of them was called the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It begins with these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then it progresses on. You can go to Hebrews 6 and look up the Shema if you want to. There were some other prayers that followed it. A good, just normal Jew would recite the Shema and another prayer, or possibly two, three times a day at 9 o'clock in the morning, at noon, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. No matter where they were at, they would stop and they would recite these prayers, oftentimes as loud as they possibly could. Now, the Jew that really wanted to prove how good they were wouldn't stop with just three times a day. They'd add a couple more times. They would start at 6 o'clock in the morning, then pray again at 9 o'clock and at noon, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at 6 o'clock at night, and for some of them, even at 9 o'clock at night. Every three hours, they would stop and announce to everybody how spiritual they were by reciting these prayers. And then sometimes, they would add some others to it, and this is what Jesus is talking about. They'd get long-winded out on the street corners or anywhere that they happen to be, at work when everybody else is is slaving away and this particular Jew or particular Hebrew would stop and they would just go into long, lengthy prayers so that everybody could see how spiritual they were. Jesus would say, make it a good one because you need the praise of the people that heard you pray because that's as far as that prayer is going. It isn't even going to get to heaven. Make it a good one. You see, that's what Jesus was saying. Your prayers are between you and me. Nobody else needs to hear them. You're not to pray to impress other people. You pray to talk to me. Let's keep it that way. 
You don't even have to tell other people unless you want to what it is that you're praying about. But by the way, when you do that, it ought to be inviting them into that prayer with you, not just declaring how righteous and spiritual you are because you're praying about this or you're praying about that. You keep it between you and God. Keep your mouth shut. How do you think Tina would feel if those intimate conversations that we've had, I stood up here on the stage and shared with all of you all the time? Do you think we would have the relationship that we do if that was taking place? I can promise you this. If Tina was coming up here and saying, hey, let me tell you about the things Phil and I were talking about last night just while we were out walking the dogs and he was sharing his heart with me, I wouldn't be very happy. Why would God? So you keep it between you and him. It's a secret thing. And it's a part of the intimacy that we have with him. And that's the way it's supposed to be. It's a secret. And it's a relational one that draws you close to him. And in some ways, draws him close to you because you've invited him there. That's a good thing. It really is. And Jesus says, protect it. Well, let me show you past the scripture before we move on that actually illustrates how this works. This is in Acts chapter 10. Almost moved too quickly. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly, bringing together the the top two things that Jesus was talking about, giving and praying. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius? Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. And that brought Peter back to Cornelius' house where Peter would receive a vision from the Lord that would open up the kingdom of heaven for the Gentiles, for me and for you. This was a significant time. Cornelius was praying, Lord, I want to be used, and this is how God responded to the prayer. Now, follow the whole thing through. God didn't say, Cornelius, you're supposed to go and preach to the Gentiles. He said, you just get Peter here. So Peter got there. He received a vision that opened up not just the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles, but it brought freedom in Christ to all of Christianity because of the vision that Peter would receive. And sometimes that's what God does with us. He shows us our place in the plan. It isn't necessarily revealing that you are the plan. It's just God revealing your place in the plan. And in Cornelius' situation, it was just to get Peter there, that he might be in the right spot to receive the vision that God had for him. When you pray and God draws near to you, he shows you, he shows you exactly where you fit. That's pretty cool. It really is. Now, let's go on to the third one. Jesus would call out giving, particularly the giving of alms. He would call out praying, and in both of those situations, he would say, keep it just between us. You don't have to tell anybody else about it. Just keep it between us. And then he comes to this third one, which is so unique, fasting. Fasting has caused a lot of confusion in the church, particularly the New Testament church. Part of the reason that confusion exists is it's only commanded for one day a year, and it was a Hebrew commandment. The command is found in the book of Leviticus. They were supposed to fast on the day of atonement. That was it. Now, after that, 
people started applying the fast to all kinds of different things, but that's the only command in all of the Bible. When you get to the New Testament, we are never commanded to fast, but we are free to fast. And the fast as a whole is this. It's where you deny something in your life and then choose to use whatever it is that you have denied, whether that is food or whether that's time or whatever it might be, you use that as a means of drawing near to God. So let's apply how that might work. Let's decide you're going to fast from food. There are a lot of people that have messed up that fast. They believe that they'll go on a biblical fast to lose weight. You don't ever lose weight when you are biblically fasting. So don't be surprised if you are saying that I'm on a biblical fast to lose weight and you want to lose 10 pounds and instead gain 20. (laughs) That's God's economy. He'll show you how it works. A biblical fast says that I'm going to give up food that I will use the time that I would have spent eating to pray and to open my Bible. So breakfast rolls around and you have a big plate of biscuits and gravy and some eggs. I haven't eaten today. (laughs) This is a tough conversation. So you set that aside and you choose to open your Bible and pray during the whole time that you would have been eating breakfast. And then lunch comes around. Same thing, you have this big meal sit in front of you, you set that aside and you choose to use that time to pray and to open God's word. And supper comes around, you do the same thing. That's the point. I'm giving up food and the time that I would have spent eating to be with God. Today there's this new move for people to fast from technology. They put it on Facebook all the time. I'm going to go on a Facebook fast. I'm going on a technology fast. I'm not going to be on Facebook or Twitter or MySpace or anything else. I'm going on a fast. Well, here's the problem with those types of declarations. Why in the world are you telling anybody? And the whole theory is you're going to go on this Facebook fast. Well, if it's biblical, then you're going to use the 8, 9, 10, 12 hours a day that you spend on Facebook to open up your Bible and to pray. And if you're going to do it the way God says to do it, nobody should know about it. Nobody should be aware of it. It's always funny to me on Facebook when people announce that their fast is over. I've been off Facebook for 30 days, fasting with the Lord, and now it's over and I'm back. And I always want to say, well, woohoo, we missed you. Why are you telling anybody this? Because Jesus says if you're fasting, it is between you and him and you're seeking direction from God, nobody else needs to know about it. Matt and I attend a meeting about once a month when we actually make it, and it's a a lunch meeting. And it's always interesting to me when we're sitting around the table and the lady comes in to take our orders. And so this person orders a hamburger, this person orders breakfast, whatever it is, you go all the way around the table. And then somebody says, well, nothing for me today, I'm fasting. I always want to say, I've never said it, but someday I'm going to be bold enough to just spew this out. I want to say, then why are you here? (laughs) If you're fasting during lunch, and the whole point is that you are going to open up God's word and you're going to be praying that you might receive something from God and draw near to him and him to you, why are you here? Because this is between you and God. And certainly, why are you telling anybody about it? This is a secret. Keep your mouth shut. This is a secret, and it's part of the intimacy with the Lord. There's a story about an old Eastern monk that loved to fast and pray in public. So he would cover himself with ashes and go out and sit on the streets and 
People would walk by and always want to pull out their camera to take a picture of the destitute monk who had been sitting there all day long just praying and wanting everybody to see what he was doing. Well, he had already messed up a whole lot of things in Christ, but it got a lot worse when people would pull out their cameras and the two attendants that that monk brought with him would go and rearrange all the ashes on his body so that he was now photo-worthy. And people would go stand next to him and get their picture taken with him. There is no power in that. There is no value in that. There is no reason for that. Lord says, keep this between us. And when you do, some cool things will happen. Like this, we're still in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there was a prophet and teachers. There were prophets and teachers. Barnabas... Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is a great story. More often than not, when we read this, our eyes come to rest on Barnabas and Saul. They were sent off on the first missionary journey that would open up the rest of the world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we read the story and we think, wow, how amazing for Barnabas and Saul. This is a great thing. But did you catch the fact that there were three other people there? And they're the ones who who really got everything rolling. They were fasting and they were praying together, seeking God's direction for what was going to happen in the kingdom of God. Two of the five were told to go on a missionary journey, but three of the five were told to stay right where they were at. Because in prayer and fasting, they found out that they were exactly where they were supposed to be. You don't need to leave. You don't need to go on a missionary journey. You stay right where you're at. Sometimes when we pray and fast, what comes is affirmation of purpose. Sometimes when we pray and fast, we hear God saying things like this, just stay where you're at. It's all good. Somebody else is going. You just stay where you're at. You remain faithful. You don't need to do anything else. Just stay where you're at. I'm taking care of the rest of it. That affirmation can be powerful in our lives. But when we announce it to everybody else, we destroy even the affirmation, let alone the direction. We turn it all upside down. So Jesus says, keep it to yourself. These are not just early practices in our faith. And they're not things that are supposed to change. They go the distance in the relationship. And they're supposed to. In fact, they're supposed to grow in intensity as the years go by. Just this past month, Tina and I celebrated our 26th anniversary. We'd gone to dinner in Coeur d'Alene. We were coming home, and as we were driving home, just talking with each other after that, we were sharing one-year and five-year dreams and goals with each other, always with this following it up. I would ask her, hey, I want you to share with me a, a goal and a dream that you have this year that I can help you realize, and then she would ask me the same thing. 26 years into marriage, almost 30 years from 1987 and 88, when we first got together, that's still the driving force of the relationship. Now, what she shared with me is none of your business. What I shared with her is none of your business. Those were secrets shared with us. By the way, we didn't even have that conversation with children in the car because that was just between us. What can I do to help you achieve what you need and what you want in the next one year and in the next five years? My friends, that's intimacy and secrets are involved. And if we don't hold them close, we rob ourselves, 
We rob the whole relationship of the blessing that's attached to it. That's true even with God. Don't share those secrets. You keep them close. Stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for opening yourself up to a relationship with us. That is such a wonderful gift. One at times that I think we take for granted and one that I also think we don't do our part to develop. We just hope it'll be what we want it to be without working at it the way we should. So I'm grateful that you show us places that we need to invest. Just like these secrets, Lord. Thank you for showing that to us. I want to pray specifically at this moment for those that haven't started into that relationship. Lord, would you get them on the trail and get them moving so that they can discover things like this? Introduce them to grace and mercy and forgiveness by introducing them to your son. And then, Father, show them the relationship that's possible. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.